Lord, we're just, we're all just enjoying the sound of a newborn baby. And as we reflect on the work of your spirit in our midst, it reminds us that you, you have given us each the opportunity to be reborn. Each of us has the opportunity to start fresh with an infant spirit in us, that we could go from being the old broken people that we are, wounded and weary and filled with the desires of the flesh to being newborn babies in Christ our Savior. And then we could call him Lord and leader of our lives because of the spirit that is birthed in us as a result of our repentance and salvation. That we could be born again and born into your home, into your household, and now part of your family. We thank you, Lord, and praise you for this incredible gift that we don't deserve, but we run to you to embrace. And we ask, Lord, that you forgive us for accepting this enlivening spirit in us, but not really living into it. We ask that you forgive us for being awakened anew with the spirit of our Lord in us and yet not inviting that spirit to take over. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit might come alive in us, that we might be set aflame in a way that shows that you dwell in us and with us. We ask you to do this, Lord, though we're a little frightened of what it might mean because we are comfortable. But we know you are a gentle and compassionate Lord and that you rule firmly but kindly. And so you will help us to ease into our Christian adulthood, just as gentle parents carefully and thoughtfully raise their children into adulthood. So help us, Lord, as spirit-filled believers to bring our hopes and dreams and our fears and our pain and our suffering to your throne of grace and to leave it with you. Lord, we become so burdened by the anxieties and, and by physical disease and we become so burdened by oppressive relationships and financial burdens. And, and we realize, Lord, that so much of it we brought upon ourselves and then there's just the world out there and the enemy prowls around looking for another spirit to destroy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use that spirit within us, that newborn Holy Spirit person that we are, as a way to uh, strengthen us against those things that oppress, especially the enemy. We ask, Lord, that you take 
that burden from us and that you become our defender and protector against the enemy and that we stop trying to do it within our own strength so that we can be entirely set free to live the joy you've given us and to do your will for our lives and our relationships and this family of faith here at Shiloh even. Lord, we speak of many things when we pray and so much of it can sound overwhelming and yet today we just want to speak less. But thank you, Lord, for giving us words to speak so that when we don't know what else to pray, we can say what you taught us when you taught your apostles these words. And these we say together as a conclusion to our prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So last week I talked a little bit in our discussion of who the real enemy is about how we should feel about caring for ourselves and how we can't let the enemies oppression and injustice and hurtful words come to us in the mirror when we're thinking about ourselves and when we're looking at ourselves and we're reflecting privately about our worth and, and our being, we have, to, we have to, to resist the enemy because the enemy wants us to, to hurt ourselves with wounding words that maybe come from the past or maybe come from, you know, who knows what. But we also need to take this a step further, which is what we're going to do today as we finish this series of messages on 2020 Christian vision. We're going to talk about self-care, but not maybe the way you think we will. Reflecting on what we just read from Corinthians I want to take you on a little bit of a journey through the Bible, and it's going to be a little more teachy for a moment than preachy, okay? So when you look at Scripture in its whole, you recognize that wherever God's presence is experienced, there's always uh, fire and light 
You always see fire and light, intense light. Sometimes the light is, is, is mistaken as fire. And sometimes, for example, like when Moses encounters God at the burning bush and the, birth, the bush is not really burning. So God's intense presence is, is brightly uh, expressed and yet it's not flames in the same sense that we think of. As we go through the Bible, we realize that God's approval is often expressed with fire and light, you know, consuming a holy sacrifice, for example. And there are times when God's fire and light destroys, where God expresses disapproval with fire and light, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, as in the sacrifices uh, to Baal, and the priests of Baal, that's one of the most vile, false gods in the Bible. And it's an indication of God's holiness. It's reflected as fire and light because where, where God's holiness is, there's this purity of, of the thing. And so, you know, why, why do hospitals, at least traditionally, you know, the doctors wear white and, and so many of the, the places wear where surgery is performed and so forth, they're, they're white. The, the whiteness represents cleanness and purity, doesn't it? And I think that's a direct reflection of our, our God nature in us, that spirit within us uh, where we've been made in the image of God. And, and maybe even if we don't know it, even if we deny it, we just have this natural belief that light represents purity. And so, Keeping all of that in mind, remember then that people can't stand to be in the presence of God. That throughout the Bible, there are all these images of, of the dangers of being too close to the presence of God, that bright holiness. Moses probably got as close as any person ever did after Adam and Eve, and, and he got this sort of heavenly suntan that scared everybody. So what happened? Because Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, the Father, the Creator, in the cool of the evening. I always like to add that part to it because I don't know, it just sounds good to me. You know, it just sounds like, wow, wouldn't it be awesome in a cool, beautiful garden in the evening to walk with God? You know, we're on a theme here. That song brought it all up. And something went wrong. Darkness crept into the garden and introduced Adam and Eve to sin, and they got cast out of God's presence. They could no longer be, they couldn't survive being in the presence of God because God is completely holy, and they are now tainted by their sin, which is utter disregard for God. And to, even for a moment, say, I'm not sure God is holy and perfect and that God's will is the best. You know, that's what basically happened when they chose to disobey God and it's the very essence of sin. It's a little bit of pride to think maybe that you're just a little smarter than your creator and, and that you know better. And Lucifer started this problem with his doubt for his creator and then he's made it his mission as Satan ever since. Remember from last week when we talked about that. Now, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they had to be covered because of their sin. Their nakedness 
they were exposed now in a way that they couldn't, they couldn't be anymore. And they were covered because of their sin. And note that they were covered with animal skins, which means that having been covered with animal skins, something had to die in order for their sin to be covered. Keep that in mind. And then notice just a little later, we read in Genesis about how Cain and Abel were offering sacrifices to God. And, and it, just, it just jumps to that. And so we have to read between the lines that apparently this, this constant process of sacrifices to cover our sin begins as early as the fall. And I mean, not autumn, but the fall of mankind, right? You just want to be careful here that, that I don't lead anyone astray accidentally. And, and so Abel's sacrifice is pleasing to God. How does he know it's pleasing to God? Well, we have to read forward in the Bible and then go back to this and we can put it together. There's every reason to believe that God indicates his, his, his uh, uh, pleasure and his, his approval of the sacrifice because of fire and light. Somehow the sacrifice is consumed by fire and light and they know God's presence because they've made the necessary sacrifices in order to cover their sin so that they can experience God's glory. This is a word that I want to introduce to you now. God's glory, that fire and light, is, is in, uh, in, in the ancient language, it's called the Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory is, is that overwhelming presence of God that is bright and brilliant and, and, and uh, almost, almost uh, unimaginable. And somehow God expresses pleasure in their sacrifice and their willingness to admit that they're sinners and to repent before God through the sacrificial process, process. And then God approves of it with the Shekinah glory. But somehow Cain's sacrifice didn't meet with God's approval. Now, I, I want to think about that story for just a second, and then we're going to move a lot faster. But you have Cain and Abel, and I, and I know this isn't how it really happened, but for a moment, just picture two altars side by side, and, and Abel goes up and he gives a sacrifice, and then Cain gives up his sacrifice and puts it on the altar, and then boom, Shekinah glory takes Abel's, and nothing happens to Cain's. It just sits there. And this is unsettling for Cain. And, you know, being brothers, of course, Cain starts beating up on his, old, his younger brother and says, you know, it's your fault. This is all you're doing. This is all your fault. And, and then after the deed is done, God says, you know, he did it right and you did it wrong. And that's why my glory didn't show up. But now you're going to have to learn how to find my glory. It's going to get a little harder for you because you become more self-absorbed. And the more self-absorbed you are, the harder it is to see God's glory. Now, as you watch throughout the Old Testament, you begin to see this process of small altars where the presence of God is experienced in a small, almost microscopic way when it's done right and people genuinely seek God's glory. So it's interesting because if you go to Israel or just read anything about archaeology in that part of the world, and you'll find that, that the archaeologists have discovered many of these altars. And, and the Jewish altars all have a similar look. They're kind of like, oh, I don't know, four foot square blocks of stone. And then in the top, there's sort of a basin carved out and they have four horns on them. And, 
and, and don't overthink the horns. They're just, they're just like pointy things that stick up and point outward on, on each of the corners. And, and they find these all the time. And, and what it means is, is that wherever these things are, someone was having a close encounter with God. It's one of the reasons that as, as a pastor, it's always important to me to have an altar in the worship space. And it doesn't have to be any kind of altar. It's just something that says we expect the presence of God. We, we expect to encounter God in an intimate way. And so the altars are a reminder that that is what's going on. It's, it's very important, in my mind anyway. But as we read along, we begin to see how when God delivers the people from Egypt and, and they wander in the wilderness, first of all, Moses sets up a tent of meeting, just a tent, where he goes to talk with God. And so it's a larger footprint now than the altar. And there's not much in the Bible to tell us what the tent was. But there is a tabernacle, which is a more significant and more permanent semi-permanent version of the tent of meeting and God gives specific instructions for the tabernacle he tells them how to lay out this large sort of mobile compound that has a courtyard and 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 uh, basins for for burning the sacrifices and and tables upon which the priests prepare the sacrifices and then there's a there's a holy place that is specifically set apart for only the high priest Aaron to go in and in that place is where the Ark of the Covenant is and in that place one only one person who is carefully prepared can go into the presence of God in one day of the year to make atonement for all the people only one but there's a more elaborate and larger footprint now and God is present and we know God's presence was known by the Shekinah glory because it's described throughout the 40 years of the wilderness wandering where there's this pillar of fire. It's always there where God is. And whenever that pillar moves, they break camp and they go where it goes. So they follow the Shekinah glory of God everywhere they go. Eventually, David, after the people, you know, they decided they wanted to have a king and be like all the other countries and nations in their world. They wanted to have a king and God says, pretty bad idea, but you know, God relents. And so they settle, uh, David settles uh, Jerusalem, used to be called Salem in those days, but he settles, he, he settles Jerusalem as the capital. And in the capital, they create a temple. Now, David wanted to do it. And God said, your hands are too dirty for this task. You've been, you've been, you know, my pal all these years, but you, you just, you know, think about Moses. He couldn't go into the promised land. David couldn't build the temple, but his son Solomon builds the temple. Now the footprint has gotten even larger. And scripture tells us pretty definitively that, that the Shekinah glory was there in the temple. And they knew that God was present with them in this way because of this glory. Eventually, the people sin against God and they rebel and, and pretty much lose all their faith in, in a collective way so that God abandons them to their enemies and the temple is destroyed and the whole city is sacked. And the people are dispersed all over. It's called the diaspora. 
And then, after 70 years of separation from their homeland, Ezra is given, Nehemiah and Ezra are given permission to go back and rebuild the temple. And through a series of, of exercises, we read then that eventually Ezra and uh, some other folks, you know, see, I've strayed off my notes so much, I don't even know where I wrote that guy's name, but, yeah, you know, some, some guy helped him rebuild it. Doesn't matter. There's a bigger point here. Read my sermon notes and you can figure out what I meant to say. So then, then the temple gets rebuilt and it's not as glorious as it once was, but God shows up. The Shekinah glory is there again. So it's not as, as impressive in a human sense, but God shows up. But eventually that whole storyline goes silent and we don't know what's going to happen until we get to the New Testament and we find out through reading those apocryphal books, you know, a lot of people say, how come Catholics have extra books in their Bible? And actually Protestants used to as well. I mean, believe it or not, the old King James actually had the apocryphal books. Well, it's because they don't really say anything about Jesus, but they do tell you what happened in the interim. And the temple was always there, but it was so abused and misused by the generations that followed Ezra and Nehemiah that it changed hands off in the Greeks. If you read about the Maccabeans, the Greeks thoroughly abominified it, you know, the abomination of desolation. You know, they, they went in there and they ruined it because they worshiped false gods and filled it with pagan stuff. Then Herod defeated the enemies of the people around that time and he rebuilt the temple and he created the one that Jesus knew. And there's no indication in scripture that the glory of God ever really shows up in the same way. But the Psalms and, and even the people uh, who recorded it, uh, uh, histories apart from scripture, say that there was always smoke coming from that temple because there was pretty much round the clock sacrificial offerings being burned there. And we're coming home here. Like I said, it's a little more teachy than preachy, but here's where we're going with this. You notice the footprint keeps getting larger and larger. God's fiery Shekinah glory is, is getting bigger and bigger. God is trying to make a bigger expression of God's presence in the land with the people. And then around the time of that last temple that was built, Jesus comes. And maybe the reason there's no Shekinah glory recorded in Scripture coming from Herod's temple is because Jesus is the Shekinah glory. Remember, his birth was announced with Shekinah glory, a star that could be seen day and night as brightly as any star, brighter than any star anybody had ever seen. I, I have my own theory about that, but bottom line is, is the, the Shekinah glory was there, but it was Jesus. And then after Jesus dies, and suffers for our sake and takes away the sin of the world, then he becomes our conduit that opens the way between God and us. There's no need for a temple anymore because of the one man acting on our behalf for our atonement. Now we can go into the presence of God. We can experience the presence of God in the same way Adam and Eve did. And here's the proof. Because at Pentecost, after Jesus' ascension to heaven, 
What happened to the people there when the Holy Spirit came? They had tongues of fire, remember? Fire. I don't think their hair was on fire. I don't have any to burn. It couldn't have been that. What was really going on? Shekinah glory. You know how, you know how in the old artwork, saints are pictured with halos? You ever wonder what that's about? Shekinah glory. And the footprint is now immeasurable. Because every born-again, spirit-filled believer has the Shekinah glory. And so now there's no temple, there's no altar, there's no little place where the glory of God can be experienced. You are the glory of God. And when you gather together in one place, filled with the Spirit of God, you are the Shekinah glory of God, or at least that's what God would like to have happen. Because God's presence is where the glory is. Now, here's the preachy part, and it doesn't take as long as the teachy part. If that's what you are, then why abuse the temple that you are? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't you see? Now God is in you. Now you are the temple. Collectively, you are the temple. And if you're wearing the, the, the Shekinah glory of God and, and, and it reflects badly because of the abuse of the temple, the Israelites to this day cannot wait to build that temple to glorify God. They, don't, they, they associate that building with the presence of God and what they've missed is, is that the presence of God doesn't need to go to a certain building, it's here. Pentecost secures that for us. You know, it's always saddened me that, that uh, you know, we make a big deal out of Christmas, we make a big deal out of Easter, but nobody comes back for a massive celebration on Pentecost Sunday, and it's the best Sunday of them all. Because it's the day the Shekinah glory of God comes to all of us. So why should you take care of your temple? Because it's God's. Because it belongs to your Creator. So if you abuse your body, if you lend your body to things that they ought not to be associated with, if they're filled with the Spirit of God, if you degrade and, and deride and misuse the, the, the Spirit of the... I've not read one psalm that talks about the temple and says anything negative about the temple of God. It all praises God's glory because of the temple and the presence of God's glory. So what kind of words would you say in the mirror to your temple? Words of praise? Oh, dear God, thank you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Try to see God's glory when you look in the mirror, when you look at another Christian. This is why God is so angry when God's people misuse each other when they abuse and misuse one another, when they oppress and hurt one another. Jesus and the apostles, they carry that message on right through to the Christian family. When you hurt and oppress and wound and, and when you talk, you know, it, if you go out in the parking lot and you say something bad about Pastor Dan because, you know, he took too long again this morning or whatever, think about it for a minute. God really dislikes that. I'm not trying to play that card for my own benefit. I'm just trying to say that you, you have to hear 
what you're saying and imagine that you're talking about a temple in which the Lord God seeks to show Shekinah glory. Now this weekend, or this week on Wednesday, we're going to start the Lenten season with the Ash Wednesday service, and it's a time when we are especially disciplined. At least that's the goal. We, we work especially hard to discipline our bodies and our spirits so that we can be more prepared to experience the, the reminder of the incredible gift we've received through Jesus Christ. And I would like for you to reflect this week and then come back on Wednesday to think about ways that you can make your body more of a temple for the glory of God than you've ever done before through spiritual disciplines, through prayer, meditation on God's word, through, through Christian conversation. You know, to, to take your game to a higher level because you want your temple to reflect the glory of God. Let us pray. I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I know it's always a hard word when it comes from you. And I pray, Lord, that if anybody's struggling right now to understand what you want us to see and understand and hear and, and, and abide in, that you just open their hearts and minds to you. Let your glory shine. And I pray all of this for your name's sake and so that your glory might shine in this worship place, in this place of service. Amen.